if we can learn to pause between that trigger and our response or reaction and give ourselves the space and also the compassion to understand what that hunger is truly sig signaling, then we have an opportunity to understand what values we're missing out on, what needs are unmet. Welcome back to the PCOS Holistic Coach Podcast with me, Dr. Ami Patel, pharmacist, fellow sister, and coach. This podcast is an easy to listen to resource for your busy on the go life. You will learn how you can live a healthier and happier life with PCOS from real conversations about managing PCOS and the symptoms with amazing guest speakers. Welcome back to the PCOS Holistic Coach YouTube channel and podcast. I'm really excited about today's interview um, with Dr. Udeem. She's somebody that I met at a TEDx talk, and we're going to be talking a little bit about her book, Hungry for More, and just about her story and um, information about weight loss, which I know as my viewers and listeners, you guys are interested in, in with PCOS. So Excited to dive into all of that, but first a quick introduction of Dr. Udeem. Dr. Udeem's mission is to transform our relationship with food and our hunger to one that is empowering and inspiring people to live more physically and emotionally fulfilled lives. She's a board certified physician specializing in medical weight loss and clinical nutrition, currently seeing patients in her private practice in Beverly Hills, California. As I mentioned, she's an author and a TEDx speaker, which is how we met. She's also a podcaster. Her book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out, explores emotional and spiritual hungers that present as a hunger for food. She's also a creator and host of the Health Bite podcast, ranked amongst the top 5% most globally listened and founder of Dell, sorry, what is it? Yes, it's Dell. Okay, Dell. <laughs> Dell Nutrition, mm -hmm. line of nutritional supplements for promoting health and well-being. She's also been interviewed by the media, featured on The Doctors, Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, ABC News, Inside Edition, National Public Radio, among other news outlets. Outside all of these professional achievements, Dr. Udeem is married to her high school sweetheart, a mother to three wonderful children, and in her spare time, she likes to run, read, and be gathered around home-cooked meals with friends and family. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Udeem. Yeah, it's, I'm so glad we, we got to have this conversation. I'm excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, so first about your book, like I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I love that you connected that your personal experience throughout your life with your patient stories. I love that you included like research and statistics. You explained like the impact of our parents upbringing and how it impacts our lives, even though we may not realize that you connected like biological connection between like emotions and food and stress hormones that increase hunger hormones. So all things that we'll dive into, but I just wanted to say that, that, you know, I really enjoyed those aspects of the book. I'm so glad. Yeah. Well, what was your inspiration for writing this type of book? You know, I, so as you mentioned, I see patients in clinical practice and I've been doing so for almost 20 years. 
And, you know, when you start to listen to people who come in with the same sorts of concerns, you realize how universal they are. Same problems, same triggers, same triumphs, same losses, um, same excitements. I mean, we really, we really are so very much alike. And not only did I see that similarity in my patients, but I also saw myself in so many of the stories that people shared. But if you don't do this work and have the opportunity to speak to hundreds and hundreds of people, you don't realize the commonality and often the issues that come up in this book and are manifested in our relationship with food are taken with so much distress and shame. So this book, as I always say, it was my love letter to the patients. Uh, it's my way of saying you're not alone in this, that you're, while you're very much unique, your concerns and your challenges are very universal. Yeah, I think that's really important to hear because even like clients I see or people I talk to with PCOS, like the number one thing is they feel alone, like nobody understands them or their challenges and struggles. But as you mentioned that like we're all more alike than we are different than we think, even if we may focus on the differences, a lot of the like needs that we have are very similar. Right, absolutely. Can you talk about the connection between hunger and emotions? Yeah, I love to talk about this because again, I'm all about kind of demystifying and also um, helping people understand themselves so that there's less, less shame really. So when we talk about emotional eating, I think we often have this image in mind of like a heartbroken, girl who's you know watching netflix and eating like hagen ice cream or whatever it is people are eating these days and the truth is that emotional eating is ingrained in our physiology it is hardwired in every single human we know that hunger hormones are what manage or hormones in general are what manage our hunger these hormones are right now so in the news because of Ozempic or semaglutide, right? We're, we're altering or we're giving people analogs of normal hormones they release to manage their hunger. Well, we know that when we are distressed, when we experience difficult emotions, that we alter those hunger hormones, those very hormones that we're managing medically in order to get people to lose weight. And so our hunger and our emotions are very tightly woven together in our physiology. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think sometimes we like to compartmentalize, like hunger is different or emotions are different or stress is different or like, you know, working out is different, sleep is different, but they're actually more interconnected than we think they are. Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, the main disconnect that we actually perpetuate in medicine is the disconnect between mind and body. And it's, it's such a false disconnect, right? It's so not uh, physiologically based. And so understanding that connectivity um, between mind and body and also all the things that you mentioned is really critical, I think to not only managing your weight, um, but what's deeper underneath that. 
to understanding your relationship with a, with food as a window into your relationship with yourself. Yes, and that brings me to my next question. Perfect segue. In your TEDx talk, you said that your hunger is an opportunity to address your unmet unmet needs. What do you mean by that? Right. So, you know, when we, when we, we all have basic needs, right? Connection, autonomy, or values, I should say, right? Uh, That translate into needs. When these basic needs are not met, it's uncomfortable for us. When we don't have the connection that we want, it's uncomfortable. When we don't have that sense of agency, it's uncomfortable. When we don't have our basic physiologic needs like sleep, you know, uh, or rest and play met, it's uncomfortable. But oftentimes we don't pause long enough to understand or to have awareness into where that discomfort is coming from. All we feel is discomfort. And because we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. And how do we get rid of discomfort? We soothe. I always tell my patients, if you're a goody two shoes, you're going to soothe with a chocolate chip cookie or a cigarette or wine or working or scrolling, whatever your dopamine hit du jour is. And so if we can learn to pause between that trigger and our response or reaction and give ourselves the space and also the compassion to understand what that hunger is truly signaling, then we have an opportunity to understand what values we're missing out on, what needs are unmet. And therein lies a beautiful opportunity to actually know and to give ourselves what we really want yeah i think that goes back to what you were saying how we have that disconnect between our mind and body right like our body is like why are we having those uncomfortable feelings but if we have that disconnect then we're not able to answer those questions and that brings me to my next question you um what solutions do you have in addressing that like closing that gap addressing the hunger in a meaningful, productive way? Well, I I always imagine this is like, um, if we can slow down the tape, you know, if we can slow it all down, because when we get triggered to, to act, um, it's a trigger, right? It's kind of like a, a, a rubber band that you've stretched out, you know, and, and to the end, and now it's, you've let go and it's gonna snap. If we can create some time and space between that trigger and the reaction, slow down the script and be aware of what's happening, ask ourselves, what, what is really going on? What is that trigger really mean? Um, Perhaps, you know, you're sitting in front of your computer and you find yourself, uh, I just did an Instagram post on this, like walking towards your pantry like a zombie. We're in zombie mode that you end up in the pantry and you're like, what, 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 how did I get here? <laughs> right? What am I doing? Right. And, and that question is actually the first step. What am I doing here? If I'm not really hungry, if I just ate lunch, what am I doing? Maybe I'm tired and I need a break. Maybe I got a stressful email and I just need to take a deep breath. Maybe I'm feeling lonely and I need to pick up the phone and call my mom or call my bestie. Like, what is it that I am really hungry for? Because the truth is, 
that not only if we, when we soothe, not only um, is it resulting in habitual actions, maybe weight gain, maybe excessive alcohol or whatever, but I think even more important than that, we're glossing over the opportunity, the potential to know what it is that we actually need and give ourselves that. Because soothing, not only is it ineffective and short-lived, but it's not scratching the itch, which is why then we keep going back again and again to try and relieve that distress or discomfort. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes we get into, like you said, that zombie mode, like it's just like you wake up and then you just go through your day and then before you know it, it's the end of the day and it's just like repeat or you're just like, okay, let me just get through this week, get to the weekend. But we're not really making that time to slow down and ask, asking ourselves these questions or connecting with our mind and our body. Right, so it is, it is you know, in the moment, um, being triggered. And then I think what you're speaking to is also um, like automated habitual behaviors, being an autopilot, right? So going through your day um, from task to task without slowing down and, and really discerning what's going on. And you asked earlier about practical strategies. Well, there's practical ways of doing this. You know, if we can stop and ask the question and be aware then uh, creating that space, we can maybe take a few deep breaths and literally turn down our sympathetic nervous system so that we are in right mind. Um, maybe we can take out a pad of paper and start journaling what actually is going on in our minds, right? So there are also practices, maybe we can go outside and move our bodies, be in nature, that both of those activities, movement and nature, allow for kind of that contemplative, um, you know, space that helps us be more discerning. So you can be actionable by incorporating these different types of pause into your, into your day. Yeah. I think like what I found helpful and what my clients find helpful is like throughout the day, when you have those points, like, okay, right after work, right? Like before you start going into your next daily routine that's a great time to take maybe two minutes five minutes and do those deep breaths connect with yourself like okay what do I need for myself right now like how am I feeling asking yourself self those questions maybe that's a great time to or like right before bed journaling as you mentioned or you know after dinner before bed going for a walk and just reflecting on your day yeah I love those practical solutions thank you for sharing that um, I wanted to get more into the book and ask like specific questions. One of the things that I was reading that you mentioned in the beginning is that basically, like, as you said, you specialize in weight loss. And by the time people come to your clinic, like they have tried everything. And then they come to you basically saying like, you know, nothing works. And then you talk about how tools cannot take the place of process. Tools cannot replace the painstaking work, time, practice, patience, perseverance, resilience, deliberation, intention, understanding, self-compassion, and self-awareness necessary to engage and persist in this effort. Tools cannot restore our sense of self, nor can they restore balance to our lives. To our lives. Tools cannot replace the deep beckoning that uncovers our true hunger. 
So like what you wrote in this book, how does that relate to your practice and the values that you have around the weight loss narrative? So, um, well, when I, when I think weight loss narrative, that takes me onto a whole uh, different tangent. And I'm not sure that you're asking this, but I think this is important because oftentimes people will ask me, how do you reconcile your work as a physician practicing medical weight loss? So that is what I do. I help people lose weight with this um, conversation or intention or value system around compassion, self-compassion, weight loss, self-compassion. And I don't know where this disconnect happened. To me, they, those two things are very much aligned because by giving people the tools that they need to help them change their relationship with food, um, that is a form of compassion. Yeah. Compassion is not telling people, oh, let's bury our heads in the sand and not acknowledge that we are using food in a way that is a disservice to our mind and body. Yeah. Compassion is saying, hey, this is where we're at. There is no shame there. Let's use this as an opportunity to understand our relationship with food as a opportunity to understand our relationships with ourselves and live lives that are fully aligned, have our actions match our intentions for ourselves. But somehow, and I understand actually why, because we grew up and are still in a society that very much shames body weight, that very much gives an ideal picture of what women should look like and very much colludes an individual's worth with the numbers on the scale. And I'm older than you. And so I can tell you that I was even more entrenched in that slim, fast 17 magazine uh, lifestyle or narrative, right? And I suffered for it personally. It's why I'm so passionate about this work. But the response to that is not to, again, bury our heads in the sand and not recognize that many of us are not using food to our, we're using it in a way that does not serve our bodies. We can have that conversation in a way that is compassionate and empowering. And so again, for me, those two things very much go together helping people to understand what they're truly hungry for and not use food or alcohol or whatever else to soothe because it's, you know, all interchangeable is empowering. It is not empowering to say, oh, um, you know, and, and I say this, I know some people may scoff, but there's this whole movement of health at every size. And it's true that you can be healthy at every size. But it is also true that when you are overweight or excessively overweight, that the likelihood of it impacting your health goes up. You can have a smoker that doesn't get lung cancer, but that doesn't mean that smoking doesn't impact or increase your chances of having lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather not say, oh girl, it's okay. 
you know, uh, just go ahead and, and soothe with food. I'd rather say, girl, it's okay that you're using food to soothe. I understand how painful this must be. And let's figure it out in a way that is empowering and compassionate. Definitely. Um, I think that was actually like one of my biggest takeaways. Like you talked a lot about like self-acceptance and self-love. And I, that's like something that I've been focusing on personally for the last one and a half years. But, you know, it took me basically like 32 years to get the, to this point because of what you're saying, right? Like society and the images and things that are out there that are like defining what beauty is. And you talked about shaming. I think like me personally and like people that I work with, they, I feel like a lot of it is self shaming. Like I shame my body and myself a lot because of these things from the outside that basically have been ingrained in me, I guess, from a young age. Right. So even as adults, that's impacting us. So what are your tips on like how we can stop shaming ourselves and develop more of that self acceptance, self compassion and self love? Yeah, and thank you for bringing me back. This brings me back to the beginning of your question before I got on my soapbox. Which is, um, which is, you know, why do the tools in and of themselves not work? Uh, and why we need to bring this self-compassion piece. And here's the irony of that whole narrative is that when you start from a place of self-acceptance of and self-compassion, that's the very place from which durable change is generated. So if we can shift our focus from self-deprecation and shame and move into self-acceptance and self-compassion, then long lasting change can actually happen because now we're operating from a place that is focused on our total well-being from a place of, again, kindness and self-understanding. But of course, this is hard as frick to accomplish, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Because we are created for survival and survival means detecting threats. And one of the convoluted ways that our brains have managed this situation is to constantly scan the environment and to notice threats, except that the threats that we're picking up on or the alarm bells that are coming to our attention are the negative, is the negative real in our minds. It's not the tiger for which the evolutionary mechanism was initially created. If you're looking for a new tool to help you stay motivated, accountable, track your progress and celebrate your wins and actually get results for all the effort you put in in achieving your health goals, then I have the right tool for you. It's called my 2024 Hormone Health Journal. Inside you'll find tools, trackers, journal prompts to help you stay on top of your health. It is currently on pre-sale and pre-order for only 18 US dollars. You will also get a free bonus, which is access to my mini course, How to Enjoy Indian Food Guilt-Free with PCOS. And you also get access to a live workshop where I'll be going over the journal mindset and talking about hormone imbalance, 
followed up with a Q&A. If you would like more details and to purchase, see the link in the description. But it's that real. And it said that we have 60,000 thoughts per day. I don't know. This may be a bogus, you know, some number someone once mentioned and it's just been passed on. on. I don't know how they came up with that, but it makes sense. I mean, I, I can tell you I have a many, many, many thoughts per day. I don't know if there's 60,000. And the majority of those are negative thoughts. So this is something that's ingrained in our psyche. So what it requires is one, again, being aware, like slowing down the tape, understanding that this is, this is what we're doing and what I'm thinking, just because I'm thinking it doesn't make it true, right? We can question our thoughts. And I think that's gold because I, I personally for a long time felt like I was the authority, you know, my thoughts were the authority. Everything I thought necessarily was true and that's false. The second piece is understanding the common humanity. This is not something that just you, Dr. Amy deal with, or me, or, you know, Beyonce, or this is everyone. Everyone deals with this tape, this rolling reel in your head. So when you understand also the common humanity piece, you're less likely to blame yourself. And then finally, to give yourself compassion in that moment. So sometimes what happens is you're trying to be more aware. You're like, I'm going to be aware of my negative thoughts. You walk into the bathroom and take off your clothes to get in the shower. You look at self in the mirror. You say to yourself, damn girl, why is my butt so big? And then you start blaming yourself for saying that negative thing to yourself. It's like a negative on a negative. But if you can just notice in that moment and have self-compassion and say, you know what? Um, I get what you're trying. I get that this is a protective mechanism. I get that this is a script that you've been playing over and over in your head for many years, but now it's time to stop. I'm going to gently hold your hand and we're going to choose an alternate narrative, an alternate conversation. I think also, like you mentioned this in your book that like the first time you someone mentioned anything about your weight it was as early as age six that somebody mentioned like it was one of your first negative memories about weight right so i think it's like okay these thoughts like where are they coming from are they thoughts that i have or is it something that somebody said to me and like if you want to just elaborate a little bit on that too like how i guess these beliefs that we have they come from society or they can come from people that make comments like in your situation um so like your personal struggles and experience with weight loss how did that impact what you wrote in the book in that specific situation yeah so like i said um you know i i uh was born in the united states to you know immigrant parents but was fully um ingrained in this culture and this society and all the messaging um, and, and I had familial messaging as well. Um, thank goodness my, my parents were not engaging in that, but I have memories of, fa of family members. Yes. As early as age six, reprimanding me for, you know, filling my plate or the food that, you know, filling my plate at the table, basically. Um, which in retrospect now is it's heartbreaking. You know, I have three kids myself, so um, I can have compassion for that person, for myself at that age. 
Um, growing up, um, I remember a time when I would, you know, walk to school and I would, there was a Ralph's on the way and I would grab cans of Slim Fast, you know, or the powder because the cans were too expensive. And so I would make the Slim Fast myself. To this day, that artificial strawberry flavor makes me want to, you know, uh, yak. So, you know, a lot of these things were, were uh, messaging that I received from an early age. And actually studies show that age six is the time that the young girls and even boys start to hear this kind of messaging and that negative body image starts as early as that age. And what's even more shocking is that it has no basis in reality, meaning that even normal, quote, normal weight and underweight children will still have negative body image. So it's, again, there's not even, it's not necessarily even based in a reality. Um, that's how pervasive it is. So, you know, again, this speaks to the common humanity piece um, and to acknowledging ourselves as we, we can have a lot of co compassion for children and not for ourselves, but the reminder that, you know, you're somebody's child too you know, is a powerful reminder to change how we relate to ourselves in this way. Yeah, I really like that you mentioned that. So I think like basically to develop a little bit more self-acceptance, compassion, and love, you're saying basically think about the thoughts that are coming, pause for a moment, ask yourself like, is this a negative thought? Where is it coming from? Like, I don't have to accept that as reality and kind of working through that and falsifying it and changing your beliefs around weight and yourself. And I want to, I want to offer a very practical example, because I think sometimes when people haven't done this work, they listen to this kind of conversation and it sounds so like yippee skippy. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love yourself, love yourself, you know, and then they go past the mirror and they're like, ew. So let's talk about how this really impacts habit change. So for example, um, you know, you, you decide to, you know, engage in a lifestyle shift. You decide, okay, I'm going to pack my lunches. I'm going to clear my pantry of some of the processed package stuff that I'm triggered to consume excessively. I'm going to make a habit of, you know, getting out in between Zoom meetings and going for a 10 minute walk, whatever the case may be. You do it for uh, a week thinking, wow, I've done so much. I've made so many changes, expecting that at least you've lost five pounds. You hop on the scale and you've lost three pounds or zero pounds, or maybe you gained a pound. You have two choices. You can either get angry and hate on yourself, or you can, you can hold yourself with compassion. The outcome of route one is almost invariably throwing in the towel yeah. because you are so mad. You are so frustrated. You are so, you know, upset about the outcome that you've lost your will to continue trying. Whereas in option B, if you can meet yourself with a from a place of understanding and compassion and say, gosh, you know, I'm so sorry that I tried so hard and I didn't get the result that I was hoping for. It's hard to meet my own limitations or imperfections or, 
you know, humanity. But I'm going to meet this moment with compassion and I'm going to use this opportunity to regroup and see maybe what what I could be doing differently or who can help me in this effort, right? Very different um, approach and very different outcome because in outcome A, you've hit a wall and in outcome B, you've engaged in a growth mindset in which you have the opportunity to reevaluate, reassess, and to move forward with resilience. Yeah, I think like that conversation about self-compassion and like you mentioned earlier, like you're somebody's child. So like talking to yourself like you would to a child, like what would you, what advice or what would you say in that situation, right? Which is like, you know, keep going, things like that, or what you would tell one of your best friends or a loved one, like how you would talk to them. I think that's like the first step in, or one of the first steps that has helped me in changing and that mindset that like, instead of giving myself a lot of self-criticism and shifting to that self-compassion a little bit. And it totally impacts your ability to make change, yeah. right? Which is ultimately what we're striving for. Exactly. And kind of gives you that encouragement to keep going. So you do see those results that will come. So throughout your whole book, you shared a lot of personal stories that relate back to your patients. So what did you learn about yourself and your relationship with food and weight while writing your book? Um, you know, I think, as they always say, the, this, this process is it's layers of an onion. And I think no matter where you are, uh, you know, you reach a point and you're like, wow, I feel so empowered. I feel so aware. You know, I, I understand where I'm coming from. And then you turn a corner and you're like, wow, here's another angle that I haven't looked at. Here's another angle that needs to be addressed um, or worked through. And that's a process that is ongoing. I don't think we ever, if we're really honest with ourselves, we never, that process never ends. For me, writing is a very therapeutic tool. It's a really, and the, and the data supports this, that when people engage in a regular writing practice, they are less prone to anxiety and depression. They have less ruminations and this is how the mind-body connection is so beautiful. They've even shown, for example, that people who have uh, uh, autoimmune disease and joint pain, like rheumatoid arthritis, the if they engage in a writing practice, they have lower pain scores and are less take less NSAIDs or anti-inflammatories to those who don't. I mean, that's tremendous, right? So it also re is regulating your the physical aspects of your body. So I really recommend that as a strategy to people to start diving into these things a little bit more. I, I really like to be actionable. I'm actionable in the office. My Health Bite podcast talks about small bites. And so whenever I'm having conversations like this, Emmy, with people like you and there's people listening, I always wanna take these kind of esoteric concepts and really share how people can implement them uh, in bite-sized ways. And certainly a writing practice is a really powerful means of doing that. Yeah, definitely. 
I think it's like a lot of times we do these like projects, like even me personally, like the things I, the content, the social media, it's like, it's to educate and help others. But it, like you're saying, it's also therapeutic for myself. Like it's a, an outlet for me to share my struggles and things like that. So yeah, right. I'm glad that, you know, this experience has also been healing and therapeutic for you. Um, a few more questions. So as a physician who specializes in medical weight loss, what are your thoughts on like appetite suppressions and medications? Like you mentioned earlier, like Ozempic, and then just the fact that there's so much research around medications for weight loss for kids as young as like six that we were talking about, and then more research coming out for more medications for weight loss. Right. So, I mean, I think we're in a really exciting time because of the advent of these medications and their approval for uh, as anti-obesity medication, um, we finally have medications that are highly effective. So these gut hormone analogs are basically mimics of normal hormones that we release when we eat food, um, signal to our brain that, hey, you know, we've gotten food down here. You can go ahead and shut off or dial back that hunger signal. Um, they do other things too, like they tell the pancreas, I need more insulin. So it, that's why they're also co-approved uh, often for diabetes. They slow down the gut so that you feel full longer. So there's all these mechanisms in which it impacts uh, our metabolic intake. Uh, and they're very effective. And a recent study came out just yesterday, uh, or actually the drug company released data that hasn't been published yet, but will. I presume that showed that in over 18 or nearly 18,000 people who took these drugs, they reduced their um, uh, major adverse cardiac events. So they had a lower incidence of heart attack and stroke, which also speaks to, again, this, this knowing that excess weight is not just a cosmetic issue, that it does, it is a preventive issue. So I'm thrilled that there's now um, medical options, therapeutic options that are effective, that can help my patients who've been struggling for so many years. I think it's important though to note that it's not for everybody, that even though these drugs are highly effective, everything comes at a cost. There are side effects, there's potential adverse effects. And when we decide whether or not to, to proceed with anything, we need to weigh the pros and the cons, the benefits and the potential adverse events. If you are 30, 50, 100 pounds overweight, um, it's a very different conversation than if you're five or 10 pounds overweight, right? Or if you have comorbidities related to excess weight, like hypertension or diabetes or reflux or fatty liver or, you know, PCOS. It's a very different conversation than, than otherwise. So it's individual. There isn't a one size fits all, which is, I know what we always want. Just like the, give me the, <laughs> give me the top five. Yeah. I think it's interesting when it comes to children and adolescents, it's not as clear cut. On one hand, we know that the longer you live with obesity, the more likely you are to, to continue to be overweight and obese, and the longer you have to develop potential comorbidities. So again, you may be overweight and healthy all your life, 
but chances are if you're living with it for 30 40 years that you will develop uh, some related medical condition like diabetes or hypertension so in that way you know i favor medications that could help them at the same time these medications are relatively new and so we we've had them for diabetes for 10 15 years um we know that they're pretty um uh, effective and uh, safe is the word I'm looking for for that time frame. But do we know what happens if somebody takes it for 30 years? No, we don't. And I have patients who I don't treat pediatrics, but I treat young adults. I have patients who are 20 years old and we have to have this conversation of, you know, here are the pros, here are the cons, and here's the, I don't know. And we have to make a decision based on your values, your desires, your personal situation as to whether or not you want to engage with this or not. What bothers me is that, um, you know, number one, it's being used in ways that it shouldn't be used. And then there's conversations that are not, um, by people who who have no stake in the matter they're not treating people with obesity they've never been obese perhaps themselves and they're tainting the conversation in a way that's very unproductive so i would say if if anybody fits in that category that they think that they may benefit from medications have a conversation with somebody who knows i'm not a drug pusher and there's plenty of times that people come to me and get pissed because I actually don't think they're a candidate. So it's not a matter of pushing medications, but have the conversation with someone who's educated and educate yourself and then make a decision knowing that nothing is a slam dunk. Nothing is gonna be 100% good or 100% bad. It's a matter of weighing you know, the pros and cons. Yeah, and I think it's like everything you said in addition, like incorporating the lifestyle changes and then you know like going back to your book like what is the actual reason that the weight is there and is that being addressed as well alongside these medications that can maybe jump start or help you reach your goals but ultimately you still have to address like where the weight is coming from because like you know some of these medications if you come off of them when you come off of them the weight may come back if you're not addressing the reason that the weight came from right is that yeah but i do want to address that too because you know we don't talk about when you come off of metformin when we talk about pcos we don't talk about or when you have diabetes we don't talk about when are you going to come off your blood pressure medication if you have hypertension we say we're treating your PCOS with this medication and it's lifelong or indefinite. Now I understand that people don't wanna be on medications lifelong and that's a different conversation, but that doesn't mean it's a failure of a drug. The fact that a drug or a failure of the person, the fact that the drug no longer works for you when you stop taking it, isn't a reflection of you or the drug. We wouldn't expect any other drug or any other person to maintain a condition off of the treatment, right? So that speaks, I think, a little bit to the way we're biased in, in the way we think about obesity and excess weight. Um, but having said that, whether or not medications 
or tools, these tools are used, the lifestyle piece or the mind, it's not so much lifestyle that I talk about in the book, but the mindfulness piece plays a role. Oh, and this is the other thing I wanted to say is that, as you know, I talk about in the book, the physiology, what changes in the body when people lose weight or when they gain weight and they lose it. Again, when we go back to the evolutionary aspects, our bodies were not created to lose weight. Weight loss is seen as a threat to our survival because if you go back to those days of food scarcity, it meant we weren't getting adequate nutrients. So the body will then double down on all the ways in which we can regain the weight. That's not a failure of the person. That, that is the pathophysiology of excess weight. So again, it's not here or there. It's not this or that. It's not black or white. It's understanding that we have to be in the gray when we're dealing with this issue. Yeah, and that it's patient specific and it is different from our, for every single person. Absolutely. I want to end with one question before we talk about how people can connect with you. But many of your stories, they end with patients sometimes not returning or not wanting to face the truth and do the work. So as like a major takeaway from today's conversation, how can we as individuals take more control of our health? You know, I think we have to meet ourselves where we're at. A lot of times we engage in uh, a new thing with very lofty goals mm -hmm. and we don't manage our expectations and therefore we're setting ourselves up for failure. I think we need to have modest expectations, mm -hmm. understand that trials and tribulations and slip-ups are part of the process. Mm -hmm. And if we can see those slip-ups with uh, compassion, and build our resilience, then we're more likely to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> Great summary of our conversation for sure. But yeah, the compassion part of it, setting realistic expectations about what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, very good point. Um, so what is the best way that members, viewers and listeners can connect with you? Where can they find your book? Where can they reach out to you? Well, everything is on my website, dradrainyudeem.com. And um, it's, it's long, but if you Google me, you'll find me. Um, on my website, there's links to all of my resources, but I love to give, uh, you know, like I said, actionable bites. And so if you head over there um, today, you can sign up and download uh welcome packet of actionable advice that I share with my patients in the office in terms of how to incorporate some of these things that I talk about in the book and on the podcast. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before? I think we did a lot. It was lovely to be here with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, until next time, everyone, be kind to yourself, be patient, and focus on progress, not perfection. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on the podcast so it can reach other listeners that need support with their PCOS. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. I would love to connect with you. Send me a DM on Instagram or TikTok at pcos.holistic.coach. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in.